Welcome to the Voices of Australia podcast, hosted by me, Anthea Hancox, and Lydia Tessima, where the concept and reality of social cohesion is deeply explored. This podcast is brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. Each fortnight, we bring to you an interesting guest who present a new and often unexplained perspective of Australia. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording the podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we pay our respect to all First Nations people. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Voices of Australia podcast. We're delighted to have you with us. And hi, Lydia. It's nice to hear from you. Nice to see you, <laughs> Anthea, in the flesh. And I'm excited for this episode. Absolutely. And I'm absolutely delighted that we have Vedran Draculich here with us today. Vedran has worked in marketing, communications and development for leading organisations in the corporate and not-for-profit sectors. He is the CEO of Gandol Foundation, one of the largest private family foundations in Australia. He's a non-executive director of AIMS and an active presenter and commentator on best practice philanthropy in Australia and, uh, I must admit, also a very um, active fundraiser for uh, Vinny's CEO Sleepout, having raised over $250,000 for Vinny. So uh, really congratulations on all of that. So thank you, Vedran, and welcome. Yes, welcome. I thought thank we you. might um, start by asking you if you'd like to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you interpret social cohesion from the experiences that you've had over your life because you did arrive here back in 1995. Yep. So be Thanks interested to hear what's happened since before and since. Yeah. Thank you very much, first of all, for the invitation and to speak to you. I really enjoy these sorts of opportunities and uh, especially when they talk about social cohesion and uh, really, in my view, what brings us together rather than what tears us apart. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have enough time for me to give you my full <laughs> life story. <laughs> but uh, I would start, first of all, by saying that uh, actually, since I started doing the sleep out with uh, Venice, I actually raid, raised $1.2 million for Oh, them. my so apologies. Oh. A tiny little difference <laughs> there. <laughs> but that's absolutely okay. That's I'm extraordinary. I'm proud Thank of you. that uh, achievement. Uh, in, well, in I did say over 250000 <laughs> <say> <laughs> It's actually yeah. nice to meet you in the flesh because I've known about this um, movement for a long time but actually didn't know the person who started okay. it. So well, there you go. That's, uh, that's good to know. But uh, I came to Australia in November 1995 uh, as a refugee from the conflict in my home mm. country in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And uh, often people ask me, why did you choose Australia? And uh, in a way, for us, it was a sort of a simple yet complicated. Uh, I came with my wife. We really wanted to uh, go as far away as possible from uh, the horrors of the conflict in Bosnia. And Australia is far enough. There is only one other further destination, which is New Zealand. But also, more importantly, at the time when we decided to move, and uh, it was not easy because uh, particularly Sarajevo, the city was under siege, so you couldn't leave just like that. We had to plan that carefully. But when we decided to leave, uh, which was already the third year of the conflict in Bosnia, by that time, majority of countries around the world stopped accepting refugees from Bosnia with full permanent residency uh, 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 rights. Mm -hmm. You could mm -hmm. go anywhere in Europe, but you would be in a refugee camp behind barbed wire, more or less, and once the war is over, they would send you back. And uh. we really didn't want to stay there, so we were looking at countries that accepted 
refugees with full residency status. And there were only four countries doing that at the time, U.S., mm. Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Ah. And we applied to three of those four. <laughs> we didn't apply to New Zealand. And we were lucky to be selected by Australia to uh, come here. Uh, as I often say, um, they uh, chose uh, my wife and me sight unseen. Uh, basically, you know, we uh, uh, submitted all these uh, forms and everything else and sent that all to our embassy in Vienna and then had some exchange of uh, uh, letters back and faxes. Back then, emails were not that common. Uh, and they said, yeah, we'll accept these two people. So we always felt a huge sort of debt of gratitude towards this country and people that were assessing us because they could have just as well said, no, thanks, we don't mm. need you here. So for us, it was always seen as a privilege to be accepted to this country. And in a way, you know, you talked about the sleep out and a few other things that I do. Uh, we feel that we are just repaying this debt of gratitude that we have to this country. So that's a little bit of my background, how I ended up in, um, in absolutely. Australia. So has that influenced how you see social cohesion? Uh, very much so, uh, and importantly so, because for me, it is, uh, it, particularly in Australia, I didn't know that much about Australia when I came here. The things I knew about Australia from perspective of a relatively young person living in then Yugoslavia before the mm. wars in, 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 uh, in, in the Balkans, we knew about the Formula One, <laughs> we knew about the Australian Tennis Open, <laughs> we knew about the beaches and surfing and kangaroos and a that few was the native and yeah animals <laughs> exactly and that was pretty much it you know we knew about this very quirky you know platypus mm -hmm. thingy mm -hmm. um, koalas uh, very cuddly uh, wombats and so on obviously kangaroos but not much more so uh, only when we arrived here did i discover to my delight one other aspect which was a uh, beautiful wines because i'm a bit of a wine buff yeah. but mm -hmm. uh, perhaps more importantly and more satisfyingly for me, uh, the uh, rich diversity of this country, despite the fact that there are still a lot of people of Anglo-Saxon background naturally, and that's fine, but also huge diversity of communities, peoples from all around the world that made a new home here. Mm -hmm. And again, importantly for me, often coming uh, because of similar push factors in their uh, distinctive countries because of conflict or war or political unrest and so on and finding a haven yeah. effectively mm -hmm. here. And in a way, because of all of that, it's uh, almost even more imperative on all of us to make this uh, a society that functions well with each other rather and, and as I said earlier that concentrates on things that are that bring us together rather than the things that uh, sort of uh, uh, separate us or make us different mm -hmm. or make us uh, look at it each other sus suspiciously yeah yeah at any point was there like a shift in the way that you saw social cohesion or rather maybe a shift in your expectation of this country because i know that some people who have fled like horrific um, circumstances in their home countries um <coughs> come here with the survival mindset and then they once they settle into this idea that they're actually very safe in this country their expectations start to shift or perhaps the way they see their position in the country um shifts i was just wondering if at some point that happened mm. for you in australia and you started to view social cohesion differently uh, look <laughs> that's a really sort of great question but uh, very hard for me to answer i have a personal view on that and that uh, 
personal view is that in my mind at least and to me I feel that to this day I operate in survival mode I believe that my daughter so the next generation is really the the one that can only overcome that and really not mm. look at it that way you know I feel that I've been relatively successful in this country and you know did a lot mm -hmm. of things and ended up being a CEO as you said mm -hmm. Anthea of a the la one of the largest family foundations. To me, that's a great point in pride, but it's almost against many odds, uh, uh, and and I don't take it for granted. And I feel that you know tomorrow that could change. So uh, to me, it really feels uh, a lot of things uh, every day as as that survival mode that I really have to make this work day after day in order not to lose the grip on it. So that 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 is what still exists for me, but. Um, in a different way, I guess, uh, to me, the story where I thought that uh, uh, social cohesion, um, I can't call it a light bulb moment, but a moment where I decided that I'm going to do this and I'm um, almost out of spite was uh, <coughs> when we arrived to Australia, initially we came to Brisbane and we were there for about two months before we moved to Melbourne when I got a job with the Red Cross in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. But in those early days, um, um, obviously the government system, because we came under the formal refugee resettlement program at the time, so very different to our experiences of asylum seekers, uh, uh, we were obviously uh, able to uh, access all the support yeah. services that uh, exist in, in Australia that I believe are very good for refugees. I think they should be the same for asylum seekers, mm -hmm. but that's a separate story. But... Uh, uh, a number of those services we really didn't require because first and foremost, both my wife and I spoke English. Mm. And that's a big difference, I think, for Absolutely. many communities yeah. when the people come, particularly elderly, if they don't speak the language, it's a huge barrier. But regardless of that, uh, people that were sort of helping us with that uh, to open up a you know, bank account and you know, to go and register at Centrelink, they said, maybe you should do that sort of the English test just to make sure that your English is fine and we said fine no problem so we went to do the English test <laughs> and I'm having a bit of a smile and we mm -hmm. finished the test and they gave us back the results so um, I don't want to overemphasize uh, uh, you know I have a strong accent but my English I know uh, grammatically is perfect yeah. I write uh, speeches and I wrote mm -hmm. written speeches for many people from mm -hmm. politicians to CEOs to chairmen I write our annual report, uh, yeah. all sorts of other things. So anyway, you know, mm. uh, my English was the same then as it is now. It's not like it's improved here. Mm -hmm. I so know anyway, my wife going. gets the uh, <laughs> results and it's sort of um, uh, B plus and I get an A minus. <laughs> so I immediately look at this and I say, mm, minus, why minus? So I sort of call out to the lady and say, excuse me, can I just ask you a question? Why minus? Because, you know, we had a very comprehensive, you know, sort of, uh, you know, you had to write the piece, you had, you know, a number of questions that you had ans to answer in writing, and then you had sort of a conversation mm -hmm. piece as well. And he said, well, that's what they decided, you know, A minus. And I said, but I know my English, you know, I, it, it should be A, if not A plus. And she said, no, well, you know, this, so anyway, she was, you know, kind of, pushing back a little bit, but I was pushing to find out why minus. And in the end, she fessed up and she said, oh, it's because of your accent. Ooh, wow. That's exactly when yeah. I hit the roof <laughs> as well. <coughs> so again, there was a conversation, the whole conversation around why 
uh, minus because of the accent, and then, uh, you know, coup de grâce, as they say. I said, so if there was a Scottish or Irish person here, would they receive a minus because of the accent? And of course, she says, no. Mm. That could be, for me, one of those moments where I said, well, we really need to sort of uh, 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 do away with these sorts of comments and these sorts of attitudes, because, uh, you know, the 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 measure of something should be just the measure of something rather than putting an overlay of whether the person has just arrived to the country or they have a mm -hmm. different color of the exactly. skin or let alone different religion and so on. So to me, part of this so whole kind of uh, push to uh, level the playing field and to make sure that everybody is treated equally sort of almost started at that moment. Yeah. That I, well. I've, it's not the first time I've heard about the issue with accents. Mm. It's a, it's a real problem. Now, thinking though, um, we've asked you here to talk about social cohesion and philanthropy. And um, so I, I wonder when thinking about philanthropy, especially where you've commented on gratitude and, and the like, do you think there is a tendency, and we're talking about philanthropy in general, not, not specific to any particular foundation or, or organisation, but do you think there is a tendency towards um, paternalism in philanthropy? Um, look, the short answer is probably yes, but it's a it's a challenge that exists uh, beyond just the issue of social cohesion, mm -hmm. uh, and because there is simply that power imbalance there. You know, there is a, a a room and there are two people in there, and one person has the purse strings, and mm -hmm. the other person is needing support and money. Yes, mm -hmm. to to put it bluntly. Yeah. So. There is bound to be a, a, a sort of imbalance there, mm -hmm. and uh, and that uh, almost paternalistic uh, approach. To me, the answer is that those that work in philanthropy need to understand a few things. First and foremost, that uh, we are not the experts. You know, I often call myself jack of all trades but master of none. <laughs> and I often say to our partners, "You are the experts. I would like to hear what you." want and then we can see how we can help you mm -hmm. with that. That's that's one thing. But also giving those organizations agency, uh, making sure that they understand and believe that we really think that they are the experts. Uh, and also trying to explain, it's hard, I know, but trying to explain that it's really not about you begging for money and me deciding whether to give it to you. It's about really what you can tell us that you can do for the community, whichever community you mm -hmm. work for, and how can we support you to do that uh, to the yeah. best possible extent. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Ooh, that could be the difference between like a very sincere um, philanthropist and maybe someone who's who's just there as a job, right? Because it that what you the distinction that you seem to explain s seems to be like intention and. Possibly, uh, I mean, uh, th there is uh, everywhere I see. You know, it's not uh, uh, confined to philanthropy. I uh, see everywhere this whole issue of the savior syndrome. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody trying to save somebody in many different situations, from you know, True. the schoolyard to everywhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, I r I guess really the question is that uh, uh, philanthropy also is a learning process. So as you go, you sort of learn and understand. And I. I've been in philanthropy for about altogether maybe 14, 15 years, 10 years with Gandalf Foundation before that with RACV when yeah. we managed, uh, among other things, the RACV Community Foundation. 
philanthropy has moved in leaps and bounds, I believe, in that time. It was very static, it was very transactional, and it was that imbalance, you know. Application mm. comes in, we assess it, and we say yes or no. These days, it's far more around conversation about learning and understanding what others need or want and how can we best help them. And there are more and more funders, uh, which I think is a real clincher, that provide core operational support or untied funding, as we call it, that requires a great deal of trust in that organization. Mm -hmm. You're effectively saying here is some amount of money, whatever it is, and we entrust in you to do what you are doing very well. Yeah. I feel that is really kind of uh, going in that direction of uh, 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 removing that imbalance and that sort of um, um, real uh, um, uh, unequal relationship between a funder and a receiver. Mm -hmm. mm, what caused that shift, though, in the culture of philanthropy? I guess we are all learning as we go. Mm. Uh, there has been huge uh, changes in, in the way philanthropy is done, uh, particularly overseas in the US and, and Europe, but also here in Australia. There is more and more understanding uh, of what uh, charities really require because mm -hmm. we are listening, I guess, to them more. As an example, you know, when I started, uh, uh, particularly with Gandalf Foundation, not within our foundation, but in, in the sector itself, multi-year grants were fairly rare. Mm -hmm. uh, these days mm. they are far more common, <laughs> where you give a, an organization two, three, four, five years of funding. Why? Yeah. Because they keep telling us that that uh, uh, enables them to plan for longer, gives them more certainty and stability. Mm. Well, if that's the case, why not do it? Yeah. Why, why say, uh, you know, no, 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 we don't trust you. We'll just give you for one year. No, no, we are trusting them. We are believing in them. We, we are doing things, if you can call it that, with them rather than to them. Mm -hmm. and it's almost the same that I would say in terms of the co social cohesion. We will probably come to that, <laughs> but doing things with these communities rather than to or for those communities. They don't need us to tell them what works yeah. for them. They know better. Mm -hmm. mm. Do do you uh, have do you have particular thoughts about corporate social responsibility compared to philanthropy, or do you think they're pretty much in line with each other and um, and and all have grown over time? Look, that's uh, uh, I think uh, uh, another area that's quite complex to me at least. I feel corporate social responsibility uh, is very much around what a, a corporation can do to further their own uh, business mission yeah. <coughs> uh, while having a social impact. And there is nothing wrong with that, but I think that's very different to, f to philanthropy and what mm -hmm. philanthropy does. Philanthropy really is at the core what that word means in, in Latin. Uh, is it Greek or Latin? I think it's in Greek, which love of humanity or love of okay. man or love of humankind. Mm -hmm. A philanthropy, by de definition, almost should be without any restrictions. We yeah. shouldn't be saying, well, you can use it only here or you can use it only there and you can use it only for this or you can use it only for that, which is, again, where that whole support for core activities, capacity building, untied support yeah. comes in. So mm -hmm. hopefully once we all end up there, that will be a much better space for everybody. 
But as an example, I can't see corporate social responsibility going that far, that quickly at least, Yeah, maybe one day. Do you think all philanthropy or, um, has the ability to contribute to social cohesion just by virtue of the fact that it is philanthropic? Uh, definitely, no question about it. But I would like to see uh, more uh, premeditated or more conscious approach by philanthropy mm. to social cohesion, uh, you know, uh, Many foundations, uh, uh, all foundations almost, have their own areas of mm -hmm. interest or impact areas or whatever they call them. <coughs> and they may be around medical research, they may be around uh, um, uh, homelessness, but you can almost overlay a, 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 an issue or a challenge or, or a focus on social cohesion around that. You know, one mm -hmm. of the mm. really good examples for us is uh, our work with Center for Multicultural Youth, yes. where we funded them for a really great program uh, quite a few years back which was called Shout Out which oh, yeah, was really yeah, yeah wh which was really to help young people from refugee migrant and asylum seeker backgrounds to learn how to speak publicly and mm -hmm. also learn how to share their story my view as a refugee as a person who came here as a refugee is that anyone who doesn't like, if I can call it that way, refugees or asylum seekers, I feel uh, they need to meet one in order to understand one and mm -hmm. then in order to accept one. If you can achieve that, that can help yes. bring people together and strengthen social cohesion. So Shout Out was about that. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, out of that came another program which was about mental health for young multicultural people, which was a program called Reverb. It was so successful that Headspace then went to Center for Multicultural yeah. Youth and said, look, we love what you're doing with this program. We also know that people of color and people of refugee and migrant background do not walk through our doors. So mm. what on earth are you doing <laughs> that you get them to talk to you about their mental health issues that we are not? Yes. So now they're trying oh. to work together mm -hmm. to actually again, create that level playing field for people with mental health needs, no matter what their background is. Yeah. That is a direct result of creating social cohesion yeah. uh, for people that might need that particular need. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. What are potentially some other areas um, that are being neglected, um, areas of people's lives or industries that are being neglected in this space? Uh, look, I mean... <laughs> or more uh, neglected than, uh, than again, other areas. Yeah. Again, I think it sort of goes almost across the board. Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, there would be a number of other sort of uh, areas where there are barriers for people of... Uh, uh, sort of people of color or people of different background and uh, uh, and trying to sort of reach out mm -hmm. their full potential. I guess uh, to me the question is more around um, not looking at areas and maybe targeting those areas but mm. really trying to go one step back and level that playing field and really try to sort of almost do away about, you know, we need to fix this for them. Uh, one of the big things that I always talked about is there are all these great programs which are around uh, social cohesion and social inclusion. But it's almost like <coughs> we need this person, whether it's a refugee or a person of color, whatever it is, and we need to kind of wheel them out in front of the audience to yeah. tell their story. <laughs> it's not about it. And then there are also other programs that are really directed for these people of color or people from refugee background to help them with something. But when you walk into that room, 
it's only them. There are no white people right. or anyone else. Mm. Yeah. My view is you p- need to put them together in Absolutely. the room. Absolutely. I distinctly yeah. remember at one university, they had this wonderful program, and a person from that university told me that. He said, I was walking past one of auditorium, and I looked in, and there was this huge group of people, and they were all you know, of different backgrounds. You could see that. And I walked in and I heard all these beautiful accents and they're talking about how do we live together better mm. and so on. And I walked out and walked a bit, bit further down and then there was another auditorium with you know a group of uh, people that are all white that are there for some lecture on whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, he was telling me, I'm thinking, why can't we bring these two auditoria mm-hmm. together? So they're sitting together and listening to the story, whether it's the second auditorium story or the first one but they should be together not sort of almost segregated because it's not about preaching to the converted or telling the you know uh, privileged people ah you know you should be friends with Mm -hmm. these other people it's really about bringing them together and getting them to meet meet each other because that's how you break down barriers and how you strengthen that, you know, core of the social cohesion. Ab- absolutely. So, so as the CEO of one of the largest family philanthropies in Australia, what what advice would you give to to smaller or or even brand new uh, people that are thinking about getting into philanthropy? What advice would you give them about how they might make a difference? Well, the first thing is uh, to say is uh, give it a go. Philanthropy can be seen as sort of a little bit almost scary <laughs> and oh, it's just for rich people. Uh, there is an aspect of that, but there is also a lot of philanthropy that, that is being done by everyday people. As an example, really great story in M- Melbourne, uh, around Australia, but particularly in Melbourne, there are a lot of networks of people that they call themselves giving networks. Mm-hmm or particular funds like a women's fund and so mm. on that come together. So it's usually like a group of 50 or 100 people that each can donate 10, 50, 100 bucks. Mm. But when you put them together, suddenly it's a bigger amount of money and they would get two or three mm-hmm. organizations to come and pitch to them and they collectively then support them. That's to me <coughs> grassroots philanthropy. Yeah. That's yeah. philanthropy that can help with that. And through that you are building those bridges as well because you know they come there and they hear from these organizations and they hear these beautiful, amazing young people who have already done huge things. You know, I often mm. think about when I meet young people from all walks of life and they start s- telling us what they have achieved in you know their 20 22 25 years of <laughs> life you know i wasn't there when i was 35 yeah. you know, i was still kind of starting off so it's truly inspirational and i think that's what we need to do I, if i can put it that way do more storytelling yeah. and mm. that will help <coughs> more storytelling yeah. and it's so interesting to see when um, someone or when groups take initiative in society how that um, inspires another group or other people to have the confidence to go and connect with that thing and add add to the change mm. just in the headspace um, example that you gave yeah. I think a lot of this conversation is about genuine engagement with each other in the community so mm-hmm. when someone or groups are able to achieve that it does inspire people because a lot of people in Australia I feel are just unsure about the best ways to interact with certain groups and people that they haven't interacted with before and I've mentioned it in this podcast before <laughs> but in an effort to avoid uncomfortable like interaction people just avoid altogether so I 
I don't have any advice, but I'm just saying it's, <laughs> it's like a gentle urge for people to, yeah, step up and, and be the change that they think they can be because that will encourage yeah. other people. And I think pick up on what you said earlier, which is to listen. Um, get out there, talk to people and listen to what they're saying. Yeah, exactly. And and when I say listen, it's really uh, uh, hear them, not just mm-hmm. listen and then, you know, you know, put your own point of view forward hear what they're saying i think that's you know what we often talk about when we meet with organizations we really want to hear what you have to say yeah. it's, it's not just passive listening to you you know we're hearing what you're saying and the other thing that you just mentioned was which i think is really fantastic is having those role models you know because it's not impossible it's hard there are more barriers on people or mm-hmm. you know from refugee background people of um, different um, uh, color of the skin or different religion or with accent, there are definitely more barriers, but they, I see them daily, they can overcome those barriers and they become amazing role models. You would know one very well, mm-hmm. uh, Anthea, which is Ahmed Hassan yes. from Youth Activating Youth. Absolutely. And yes. Ali, his mm-hmm. uh, colleague, you know, they decided, ah, we want to do something and they started. I can tell you, I know for a fact it was 10 times more difficult for them to mm-hmm. open certain doors than what would have been for somebody else. Mm-hmm. But they did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel that they are now amazing role models for many others they are. Uh, that, uh, mm-hmm. that look up to them and say, well, if they can do it, I can do it as well. Or at least I can try. Yeah. And like you said, preserving the power of storytelling because as a speaker myself and someone who's trying to pursue a career in presenting, I've been... Um, researching about how to be the most compelling speaker and one thing that I keep hearing is that always maintain storytelling at the heart of um, your speech because that's really what resonates and sticks with people the most Um, so rather than just you know expressing your takeaways or what you believe keep the keep the storytelling storytelling at the center of it essentially so I like that you said that. Very true. Vedran, I just wanted to connect back into some storytelling component. <laughs> now, I understand that you've written that Bosnian Australians are referred to as bossies. Bossies. Bossies, yeah. is that correct? Yeah. So do you think that those who identify that way have a, have a sense of belonging in Australia? Do you think um, Bosnian Australians do feel like this is their home? Look, it's really um, a very complex matter. I think it's not confined to uh, people that came to Australia from Bosnia. I think there may be many other mm-hmm. uh, nationalities that might feel the same, but it's a very mixed feeling. And again, there is a big difference between the first generation and the second generation. But there is also a difference in the context in which people came to yeah. Australia. So some came very early on, before the war even started. There may be far more stronger a pull on the heartstrings for them because they still remember Yugoslavia from maybe before yeah. the war and they haven't seen the carnage and the destruction mm. and they haven't witnessed any of the atrocities that uh, were committed there and you know mm-hmm. so they might still feel very strongly attached and they would go I mean I, we go back uh, often as well because we have family but they might feel oh, maybe we can you know, go back one day and maybe retire there and so on. Then there are those that went through the war and maybe saw family members lost, saw trustees. They probably feel far stronger uh, sort of detachment from Bosnia and attachment to Australia. Because this, as I said to me and my wife, but to many others, I know it became a haven. We came here and we suddenly felt this, you know, freedom, 
no fear of any persecution or let alone being killed yeah. and so on. And you really feel that this is your home now. Our wife and I often say this is our, for her, for us this is home, and certainly for our daughter, which you know. Uh, uh, the story that I like to say is she always tells us I'm the only real Aussie here because she was <laughs> born here. So we are not real, real Aussies. She is. Yeah. And uh, again, she likes to point out in her passport, place of birth says Fitzroy. Uh-huh. doesn't even say Melbourne or something. Yeah. It says Fitzroy. So <laughs> there well, we go. Well, just as a, as a final question, I just wanted to ask, are there aspects of the Bosnian culture Th- uh, of the the way of thinking, a way of doing things, elements of of uh, of approach to the world um, that Australia could learn from. That that in actual fact, you'd like to see us do more of. That come from a Bosnian way of seeing things. Oh, now you get me started. <laughs> <laughs> Towards the end, I love it. Now you got exactly. me started. <laughs> no, no, th- there are a few things there. I mean, one uh, a famous thing, and I was a young kid uh, uh, when uh, the uh, Winter Olympics took place in Sarajevo, in my hometown, mm-hmm. in 1984. And I already back then spoke English and I was really privileged to actually get a job. I worked during the Olympic Games. And believe it or not, Tenthi, I know you won't believe it, but I worked as a fixer for Sports Illustrated. Oh, my. That's the U.S. Yeah. magazine that came and obviously reported on the Olympics. And a fixer basically is a person that has to get the winner of whatever event or tournament is into the uh, room, into an uh, area to be interviewed. Uh, and, and Sports Illustrated had the rights to do that first and others tried to muscle in and, you know, interview the people beforehand. So as a short little person, you know, I was <laughs> you know, 15, 16, but speaking the language, I was the one sort of we weaving yeah, through people to get the person, <laughs> grab them by the arm and take them to <laughs> the place. Just grab them or charm, <laughs> charm them <Yeah>. first. <laughs> so uh, one of the things is uh, in, in sort of Bosnian culture, you just have to get the job done. Ah. That's mm. the first thing. You yeah. just have to get the job done no matter what. Mm-hmm. The second one is that they all learned during that time and uh, ever since then, even in Second World uh, sorry, in the Bosnian conflict, uh, uh, aid workers that would come from uh, uh, you know all around the world, they very quickly learned uh, two words: nema problema, which means no problem. Mm-hmm. Whatever you ask, no problem. It might, it might be impossible to do, <laughs> but we won't say. It. We just say no problem. <laughs> Can we talk to the president of the United States? No problem. <laughs> and then you figure out how to actually make that happen. And the final point, uh, a learning, that's that cultural learning that I had in Australia when I started working early on in Red Cross, very quickly from public affairs assistant to public mm-hmm. affairs officer to manager of the department. Uh, I sort of ended up as a manager eventually within a year. And as a manager of public affairs, I was in the senior management meetings. And we had uh, the secretary general at the time, Jim Carlton, who became a lifelong mentor to me until the day he died. So we would sit around and he would sort of kind of give tasks to people. But Mm -hmm. he never looked people in the eye. You know, it's kind of the Australian way. You just say this should be done. And uh, at one point there was something around public relations that I was, you know, aware of that but he said this should be sorted out and that was it and uh, two days later Jim comes to me and says uh, has that been done and I said no why (laughs) well I said in the meeting you know it should be done I said well yes you did but you didn't say veteran this should be done (laughs) if you don't specify to me or at least look me in the eye and say this should be done 
you know the uh, and he goes that's the Australian way we just say and you know it's assumed that you know yeah. it should no back where I come <laughs> from unless you look me in the eye or name me mm-hmm. that doesn't so it was a learning process for me to understand that sometimes if it does revolve around the area that I'm involved in it's actually me yeah and uh, after that I started every time when somebody says this should be done I'm like do you actually mean we should do it uh, or my team or whoever and you know then he would say yeah. yes so you know I sort of learned gradually now I know that very well but back then it was uh, that cultural difference yes. that you have there yeah. and you can see you have to be like an active member in your society to even learn these things you know you have to have scenarios of you know interaction with people and, and things to and it also just reminds me like we've got this theme of communication being the most powerful tool for I guess building or having a socially cohesive as much as possible experience in the country um, but yeah this episode for me <laughs> has been so great um, you've left me with one thought which I'm going to go and reflect on I just want to like share it with our listeners the context in which you or your family come to this country really informs your identity or your attitudes towards your country and your culture, which then informs a lot of other things. And I'm just going to be thinking about that for the rest of the day. <laughs> Fabulous. Great thought to finish on. Thank, thank you very much, Lydia. I think that's terrific just to round it all out. So, uh, But thank you very much, Vedran, for having been a guest on this podcast. It's been a real privilege and I hope everybody listens about uh, getting involved and listening and hearing. Yeah. Um, I think all of those are really tremendous messages. So thank you very, very much. Thank you for the opportunity. This podcast was brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by Faisal Farah with sound design and mixing by John Bigelow. Original music is by Official Steno. You can find all our publications on our website at scanlaninstitute.org.au. Please subscribe to be the first to receive our next fortnightly edition.